Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino. I hope you're all having a wonderful holiday season. We'll be back in the new year with brand new episodes of Everything Iconic. But for now, I wanted to play one of my favorite episodes. If you have not listened to it, I hope you enjoy it. Uh, Please uh, have a safe and healthy and happy holiday, and we will be back very soon with new episodes. But for now, please enjoy. I have an extra special show for you all. It's a chat with the one, the only, the undeniable Rosie O'Donnell. Rosie is starring in season two of The L Word, Generation Q, which premieres August 8th on Showtime. You all need to watch. She's also the star of so many films from my youth that I loved so much. Sleepless in Seattle, The Flintstones, The League of Their Own, Now and Then, Harriet the Spy. So many. And she was the star of her self-titled talk show, which meant the world to me, The Rosie O'Donnell Show. Now, you guys know I'm a talk show junkie. Growing up, I loved Live with Regis and Kathy Lee, Live with Regis and Kelly, uh, The View, Today's Show, Good Morning America. I always loved a talk show, but The Rosie O'Donnell Show, more than any other piece of pop culture in the history of pop culture, had such a profound impact on me. And Rosie's always been my dream guest on Everything Iconic. When I started this podcast, you guys, I had started creating a list, a Word document of questions that I would ask Rosie if she ever came on. And for years, I tried to get her, and I hoped she would come on. And now it finally happened. It was truly a dream come true. And I opened up that Word document that I started back in uh, early 2018, I believe, writing down questions. And there's so many things that I've wanted to ask Rosie throughout the years, you know, about her talk show, about her film roles. And we couldn't get to everything. She gave me so much of her time, but this is a woman that I've wanted to talk to my whole life. Uh, but I feel like we covered so much wonderful ground. We didn't talk about the view stuff. I would have loved to talk about the view stuff, but you know, there's just so much to get to. And I feel like this is my favorite interview I've ever done. I've had so many wonderful guests on the show, but this was by far my favorite and also just the most meaningful to me because I don't know if you guys know just how much I love her. I mean, I have the Rosie O'Dahl in my office, the Koosh launchers. I have the Burger King toys that she did when she hosted the Nickelodeon Kids Choice Awards in my office. So I look at her all day and I was like, so my boyfriend, Matt, he's like, don't show her all that stuff. You know, we did a Zoom and I was like, I have to show her all that. I got to show her. You know, I got to show Rosie. She On her show, I remember every time she had a guest on, she'd show them the doll that she had when she was a kid. Or I remember she had Mary Tyler Moore on. She showed Mary Tyler Moore the notebook she kept of uh, stuff with Mary Tyler Moore. And so, you guys, I've loved Rosie throughout all of the years, but the talk show to me was a, a pop culture high point. And I don't think we've ever had a talk show host that's been that good. Of course, there's been other hosts that have been phenomenal. But to me, the love of pop culture that Rosie had, the knowledge of movies and TV and music that she had in the 90s, it meant everything to me. And it started in 96, which was a very influential age for me. You know, I'm a 90s kid. 
And so being able to turn on the show after school and watch my grandmother or my mother is something that we can all enjoy together at Christmas time, playing her Christmas albums that she put out where she did duets with so many famous singers. I mean, it was just so meaningful to me. And I couldn't even believe it. There's something weird that happens when a dream you have is realized. And it was happening as I'm watching Rosie in the Zoom, and I was trying to hold back my tears because it just felt like uh, an, a dream realized. And so I hope you guys enjoy the chat as much as I do. Uh, she was everything to me. And I dreamed as a kid of being one of the people on her talk show. Do you remember that talk show? It always started with someone in the audience. It was like lights up. The first thing you'd see is someone in the audience introducing Rosie, saying, hello, my name is such and such, and I'm from here, and say, today's guest is, and then say, and here's Rosie, and introduce her. They would introduce the animated opening that would play, that we'd see the animated version of Rosie, and then Rosie would come out behind those curtains and talk to the audience member. And oftentimes, they would have kids who do do that introduction, and I used to think, God, I wish I could be one of those kids. I wish I could introduce Rosie. And now I feel like on this podcast, this is my moment. I'm Danny Pellegrino from Solon, Ohio. And this is Everything Iconic with Rosie O'Donnell. Hit it. It's a very special show with Danny and Rose. It's the Rosie O'Donnell Show. Rosie, how are you? Hi, Danny. How are you? Rosie, can you see I got your Barbie here next to my Fran Drescher Barbie? Perfect. That's all you need. I'm also wearing your a Rosie O'Donnell jacket here. Oh, look at that. That's dedication. <laughs> my boyfriend said I was going to freak you out. Not um, at all. Okay, good. Finally, I have to show you this. And you got the Cooge launchers in there. You've got it all, babe. <laughs> Rosie, that was mine when I was a, a teen, like literally more than anyone I've had on this show. You are such a hero and inspiration to me. And so I just want to thank you for taking the time. Uh, it means the world to me. The world. Well, it's my pleasure, honey. Totally. Rosie, it's the 25th anniversary this year of the Rosie O'Donnell Show. What do you remember most about that time? Well, it was like a whirlwind, you know, we did the first episode and we sort of were taken off into space. Uh, I don't know. It would happen quickly and it didn't stop. And, um, you know, I, I was lucky that I was able to do the six years. I'm not like a great uh, marathon performer, like, you know, Oprah did like 25 or something. And, you know, I did six years. And when you look back on it, it's a real short period of time. But boy, it was jam packed with, you know, excitement and life altering uh, moments that came for me during that time. And there was a huge shift in my life and career as a result of that show. Yeah, I, I, it was everything to me. And you had everyone on the show. You mentioned Oprah. And I was watching as I was preparing for this interview, uh, an interview you did on the Oprah show at the beginning, I think it was around 96. And right. you had, you, the both of you had talked about how important it is for people to uh, help sort of bring you up in the industry. And I wonder if that was always instinctual for you to pay it forward in a way, or if that, uh, if somebody maybe had pulled you forward, does that make sense? Yeah, well, I definitely, you know, grew up playing sports and 
Title IX was a big deal when I'm going to be 60 in March. And, you know, the, I'm right around the age where that just came into fruition. And your life changed as a little girl. You were all of a sudden allowed to play baseball and you were allowed to play those other sports. You know, my kids can't believe that when I was a kid, girls weren't allowed to play Little League, you know. And it's hard for them to realize just how different time was and life was for, for women back then. So because I grew up playing on teams, I always thought, you know, that's how you do it. You, you play on team, you get somebody really great at pitcher and someone to catch and, you know, get a couple hitters. So I always was looking for the women that were supporting other women and was lucky enough to find a lot of them in my life and career, including Nora Ephron and Penny Marshall, both of who are no longer with us. But, um, you know, I uh, think about the both of them an awful lot and was really blessed to be able to work with women who support other women and their growth. And Penny had directed you in A League of Their Own, which is one of the best movies of all time. Uh, did you and Penny have chemistry right off the bat? Because I know the two of you also worked together on the Kmart commercials, and she was on your show a bunch. Yeah, I loved her. You know, she was very familiar. When I first met her, I remember I kept thinking, don't call Laverne, don't call her Laverne, don't call her Laverne. And then she said, hi, I'm Penny. And I said, hi, I'm Laverne. Fuck. Like I, like, I was so worried about not calling her Laverne that I said I was Laverne, which was, you know, strange. But we got along right away, and we were both from New York, and both, you know, I was one of the few people who could understand everything she said because she mumbled a lot. And so, like, during league, she'd be going, like, somebody go out there, catch the ball, fall over, get the hot dog in your mouth. Who could do it? I'm like, I'll do it. And she'd always go, Rosie again. Why can't anyone else come up and do something? And no one understood what she was saying. You know, I was like the translator. But um, I really did love her. And I, I thought she had a great sort of sense of, of who she was and, and what she meant. You know, to so many, like for for you watching my show, for me watching Boo Boo Kitty, you know, her and Cindy and, you know, Milk and Pepsi. And that was a formative show for me in my childhood. So to get to be working with all these people I idolized was very trippy for my little brain. Yeah, you know, I it's even just talking to you, it's kind of trippy for my brain. I, I grew up in Ohio and and your show so represented a world that seemed so far away for me at the time. And I don't know. I'm getting emotional. but That's okay, honey. It was a safe place for so many kids who didn't feel like they had a place. And, you know, I, I love children. And so whenever I had a kid, I was overly effusive and, you know, interested in, in truly interested in their perspective and their life. And I think a lot of kids who maybe felt they didn't fit in or knew they were gay before they had a word for it. And they would watch my show and sense something and not necessarily know, but kind of know. And it was like a, a homing device for all of the uh, land of misfit toys. And I was happy to be the grandmother of that, you know. And what a gay show it was. Sort of looking back, I watch clips now. On, I know you're posting a lot on YouTube, but I'm constantly going back and watching different things that people have uploaded. And it's like from the guests to, to you and John McDaniel. And it seems like so many people behind the scenes, too. Uh, it's such an amazing environment for queer people. Yeah, it really was. And I made it a point to sort of try to staff it with my friends and with you know, gay, gay perspective. And 
Broadway was a main focus and, you know, that's where all the gays go. So um, we had a, a wonderful cast and crew and, you know, we still get together on the anniversaries. Like Mary, my old assistant, she um, puts together a, a little little uh, get together and it's always amazing to see. We were so young and you look at pictures, we were so young and um, we did so much. And I'm always happy to meet someone your age that it really affected yeah, so many people from my generation, I think we watched you every single day after school. And uh, I remember sitting with my grandmother and, uh, you know, it was a, it was just a really special time that I shared with her and then also with my mother at certain points, too. Um, just everyone could enjoy that show. Every age. Yeah, and you know, it. and I used to come home from school with my Nana and watch Merv Griffin and Mike Douglas and Dinah Shore. And those were the shows that I watched with my Nana and when I thought of doing a show, that's what I thought about right away. Let's just do Merv, you know, let's just do Mike. Let's do exactly what they did, only do it now. And, you know, people were saying at the time, oh, look, she reinvented daytime. No, no, no. I just uh, reinvented the daytime from my childhood. Right. You were also, I believe, the first influencer, because I remember your show, no matter what you would talk about on the show, it became a big deal. Specifically, the Tickle Me Elmo, I think, was the first real uh, right. big representation of that. How did you sort of navigate? I'd imagine there were so many companies coming to you and saying, please promote this product. How did you navigate that? Well, you know, I tried to explain to Warner Brothers at the time that it has to be organic. You know, we had a thing where Roberta Flack came on and gave me a thong. And uh, she was saying, oh, bigger women, we look good in thongs. And I was like, really? And people st- started selling, sending me thongs. So we did thong week. We did thong, you know, everything. And the producers of the network said, well, Rosie, that went over so well. Why don't we do another week? I'm like, because Roberta Flack has to hand me the thong authentically. And it has to come a spark has to be real. You can't, you know, make mm-hmm. the spark. And, um, you know, I think Tickle Me Elmo, I had a little boy who was a toddler in diapers and he would lay on that thing and laugh and laugh and laugh. And it was organic and it was true. And then when companies started, you know, calling and saying, what can we do to get you to give this away? Um, you know, we kind of held them up for donations (laughs) we'd say yes we can hold up your new toy if you will go to the hospital in san antonio and fill up their year their kids space or you know and they would they would do whatever it is that we asked which was never for us but always for someone in need and i think we created an amazing way to you know get product placement without it seeming like product placement. And it was sort of the first person that was doing that, you know, Um, and it came to be a very big part of the business structure of how much money we, we were getting in from companies that wanted the exposure. You know, you mentioned charity and you've worked with so many throughout the years. I'm curious, is there a charity that you think is the best or a handful of them that you think the, the money is best used that we can all sort of take with us? Well, everyone has to go look up where they're donating to and make sure that they're doing what they say they're doing. And that's not an easy task to do. I know for me, there are places that 
I will just always sort of support like St. Jude's, you know, to think that Danny Thomas was a young Armenian immigrant and in the town and the tenements where he grew up, he would see all these baby coffins and it made him crazy. And he said, when I get older, I'm going to make a hospital so these children don't have to die. And he did it. And it's still running and never charge a child or a family uh, for the for the care that they get there. And I think that's one of the most phenomenal organizations that we have um, out there is St. Jude's. But there are so many worthy organizations. You have to find what it is that really moves you, what it is that um, spurs you to action and, and go towards that that content. You know, people are here in Los Angeles. I've only been here for a couple months now. Now, I lived here for a decade when I was younger, but now that I'm back here and the homeless situation is out of control, like it's out of control and I, I can't even believe it. And I think it's only going to get worse. It's not going to get better as, you know, we try to find our way out of this pandemic, which doesn't seem to be as simple as everyone thought. Take off your masks and look what's happening. We're having surges all over the place. And it is now the pandemic of the unvaccinated and how sad that is that, you know, to politicize someone's very life um, to the point that it could kill them. You've uh, talked so openly about mental health, which I really appreciate. I'm someone who's suffered from anxiety and depression over the years. And forgive me if I'm wrong about this, but I believe you said that it was very much sparked by Columbine. And we sort of uh, saw, uh, heard you going through that at the time. And I'm curious what you would tell yourself now uh, as someone who went through it then, what would you tell your younger self? Well, you know, there was so many changes in my life so quickly. And the show started in 96 and three years later was Columbine. And um, I don't know. I thought I couldn't believe that I lived in a country where children were being murdered in their school. And it didn't seem possible to me. And of course, since then, there's been thousands and thousands of mass school shootings. And um, I also sort of had a naivete about fame. I felt that fame would make you member of the Justice League, and then you would all get together and everybody would, you know, talk about the issues and let's say all the famous women would solve them. And, you know, I don't know, I had an illusion of, of, of what that magic wand that it, it appears that you're given when you're famous but what does it actually do, you know? So um, I don't know what I would say to my younger self other than I was at such a high anxiety state and my life had been sort of turned upside down in the three years prior. And um, I couldn't believe that I was sort of experiencing such good fortune in many ways. And here were children being shot up in their classrooms by a classmate. You know, it was just um, really overwhelming for me. And, you know, since then, I've been on medication since 99, April 99, with Columbine. And I only went off once in the time since then. And um, I was off my meds, triaging down with the doctor's help. And after about four days of crying in my bed, I said, okay, I'm never going to ask you again to go off these meds. Let's get me back on the meds because remembering or having the visceral memory in my mind and psyche of just how bad it felt 
was like, I only needed a vision of it for a moment to remember it. And I was like, I'm not going back. So it's hard for people. You know, when I when I went to a psychopharmacologist the first time in 1999, I said to her, well, how long am I going to have to be on this? And she said, the rest of your life. And I remember thinking, well, how could she know that the rest of my life? Like, that's what are you talking about? But now I, you know, understand and and agree with her that for the rest of my life, I probably will be on medication of some sort to sort of level out the deficiencies that, you know, my brain isn't able to compensate for. You mentioned celebrity and fame, and I feel like you, there's a handful of people, you, Russell Brand, people who've talked about fame very openly and the effect of it on the brain and on the human spirit. Also, just watching your show, you had so many people coming in and out. What did you learn about celebrity or the the dark side of fame throughout that period? I mean, you must have seen so many people coming in at the height of fame. Yes, well, first of all, to be cast in my first movie as Best Friends with Madonna gave me a look at fame up close and personal at a time when I didn't really have any. And, um, you know, I was worried about sort of the prison-like feeling of it, you know, like Madonna couldn't go anywhere. Now, mind you, that's the Beatles or Elvis kind of fame. That's not, you know, my kind of fame. But that once a generation kind of thing um, is really a tidal wave and you try to just keep your head, you know, above the surface and not drown. And I saw people on my show, you know, coming in with big entourages and demands. And then I saw other people, you know, doing crystal meth or in the dressing room. And, you know, I would meet the person beforehand. And then I went out and I called him out on stage and he had a huge burn mark like that from when he would, smoke it and then i guess you nod off right and who was it can you tell me leaf garrett wow at the time that he was coming out to promote his sobriety wow which i thought was interesting i mean there were people who were very fucked up on drugs um and like you could see the white powder in their nose and at the commercial i told farrah fawcett right before she went to do letterman that historic letterman night she did and I was like, Farrah, you have something on your nose at the commercial. And wow. I was like, this is the saddest thing I've ever seen, you know? Well, I always sort of read between the lines, because whenever you had younger talent on, someone like a Britney Spears or or the Olsen twins, even I remember there being a girl group called Dream, and they were very young. And every time a young guest was on there, you'd say, are you going to college Who's your manager? Who's your parent? Let me talk to a parent backstage. Like, let me figure that out. And I always just thought it was a maternal quality, but I would always read between the lines like, oh, she's seen what can happen to these young talents. Yes. And it's not easy. And when you think of what Brittany has been through as the breadwinner of that family since she was a toddler and what they have done to her, imprisoned her with this conservatorship. Now, if somebody is out of it enough to need a conservatorship, they usually can't maintain a residency in Las Vegas, showing up to every show, not missing a show and making millions of dollars for the people who put her in this conservatorship. So it's hinky, as they'd say in cop world. You know, it doesn't pass the smell test. Mm -hmm. And um, I think fame, as Boy George has said, 
fame is the impending glittering disaster. And I think Eminem really wrote about it and Joni Mitchell wrote about it a lot in their work. You know, Eminem said superstardom is close to postmortem. And uh, it's hard to explain to people unless you've lived it. And there's also a reticence for people to really hear about the reality because it's an illusionary existence. You know, Mm -hmm. like people think that celebrities are all gathering at J-Lo's house at night. And we all just sit around with Ben and everyone and have drink and then go home to work. No, it's not like that. I mean, you have your friends who are in show business and then you have your friends who are in real life. And, you know, you try to um, make make it all merge, mm-hmm. but it's not an easy thing. And what people want or expect from you when you're famous is difficult to deliver. You know, I think we're all sort of looking at the media impact specifically with the free Britney movement and analyzing what that must have been like for her back in the day. But yeah, I I love Britney and it always seemed like she was such a a lovely human. She is a very nice woman, a very nice girl. She was an incredibly um, kind and and receptive young woman. And, um, you know, we got we got along really well and she did my show a lot of times. I mean, I did an interview for CNN just because I wanted to speak up for her, but you know, I haven't seen her in 25 years, you know, and it was kind of hard to get in touch with her in the midst of the chaos and the conservatorship and the phone. She wouldn't have her phone. And, but I remember I would be at the four seasons hotel and I tell the concierge, if she comes to do the masseuse downstairs, cause she apparently, was doing massages at some point there. I would go down to the gym and try to find her, you know, to see, are you okay? Do you need anything? You know, recently I sent her a DM with my phone number, but who knows if she even gets that. I want to take a quick break here. Before we do, I want to encourage everyone to find me on social media at Danny Pellegrino on Twitter and Instagram. If you want to support this podcast, you can go to everythingiconic.store. We have lots of merch available, t-shirts, wine glasses, all sorts of things at everythingiconic.store. You can also support this podcast by going to patreon.com slash everythingiconic. And if you donate $4 or more per month, you get access to the bonus episodes. I'm doing one a month. I'm recapping Sex in the City over there from the beginning. So you can get those recaps one a month at patreon.com slash everythingiconic. Now let's take a break and then we'll be back with more from the one and only Rosie O'Donnell. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp, and we all carry around different stressors, both big and small. Sometimes the small stressors are the worst for me because I cannot stop thinking about them when I'm trying to sleep or when I'm trying to go about my day. I keep those little things bottled up, and it can start to affect me negatively. Now, therapy is a safe space to get those things off of my chest and figure out how to work through all that stuff. And if you've never benefited from therapy, I think it's time you explore. I think anyone can be helped by going to a professional therapist. It's so incredibly helpful to get those coping skills skills and uh, deal with those stressors. So uh, if you're thinking of starting therapy, you can give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be super convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. All you got to do is fill out this quick, brief questionnaire and you get matched with a licensed therapist and you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge, which I think is so important. uh, So that way you find someone that you work well with. Now, get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash everything iconic today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, 
H-E-L-P.com slash everything iconic. Ah, I love that sound, don't you? And that's the sound you're going to hear when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell online, in person, on social media, and beyond. Uh, we use it here at Everything Iconic. Shopify is the best all-in-one commerce platform capable of handling all your business complexity, no matter how big you grow. I think it's fantastic. You're probably thinking, sure, but migrating is going to be a headache, but Shopify's app store has the migration apps you need to migrate all of your products, your orders, your customers, and more uh, from every major e-commerce platform all the way to Shopify. And I always hate when I'm shopping online and I have to re-enter all of my information. Well, Shopify store remembers your shipping address, your payment information. So if you're on the couch and your wallet's on the kitchen counter, you don't have to get up, which is nice. So sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash everything iconic, all lowercase. That's one month for just $1 at shopify.com slash everything iconic. Shopify, S-H-O-P-I-F-Y dot com slash everything iconic. Now, I want to switch gears a little bit to uh, also within the music world, your Christmas albums. You're one of the few people who has two holiday albums. The others, Mariah Carey, Jessica Simpson. I love those albums. What do you remember most? You really like duetted with just about everyone from Elmo, uh, Sync, everybody. What do you remember? Yeah, about it was the greatest. It was, you know, Tommy Mottola's idea. He's a good friend. And he was like, we could do this. We'll kick it out in a couple of weeks. And we sure did. We kicked it out in a couple of weeks. And um, I have friends and I have people who write me and say, you know, the tree gets put up. And so the rosy CDs get on the turntable, you know. Um, but I love doing it and they use pro tools. So I sounded better and I really like having them as a memory of that time period. I mean, how wild is it? There, there's a song destiny's child does on the second one and Beyonce singing chillin' with Rosie O'Donnell, having a good time. We clown him. And it's like, I mean, that must be wild. And you sing with share, share, right? Share the share. Oh, right. Woo. Oh, I love yeah, it. Yeah. She's delicious. I mean, you know, the people that I grew up watching, it's unbelievable. Now, not so much Beyonce and not so much Madonna because, you know, I was already an adult when they were, you know, but people like Florence Henderson when she was alive. Oh, my God. To be sitting next to Carol Brady or the one that really threw me for a loop, like I totally lost my place in the interview was Julie Andrews when she went like this with her hair and that's exactly what she does on the mountain, you know, <laughs> and when the beginning, when she's twirling around and I remember thinking, I can't believe I am speaking to her. And it happens to me with people I grew up loving, like Bette Midler, when I've, you know, been out to dinner with her in my brain while I'm talking to her, I'm saying, I cannot believe you're having dinner with Bette Midler. Like, it's like a dissociative thing because it was so much a part of my desire as a child and my intention to become, you know, their friends and to think that I achieved that with a lot of people that I grew up loving is pretty phenomenal. I always loved that you had such a love of pop culture because I felt like I did too. So it was like, oh, she's one of us in a way. And even though sometimes I might not have grown up with, uh, I did watch the Mary Tyler Moore show, but, but 
a lot of the people you had on that you idolized, it made me want to idolize them too, or or discover the sound of music, the Mary Tyler Moore Show, Bette Midler's discography, Barbara Streisand. You introduced so many young people to a lot of these legends that that you looked up yeah, to. Yeah, and I loved doing that. Now, Warner Brothers wasn't so happy when I would always do that. They would be like, we don't want Rosemary Clooney on again. I'm like, but guess what? I want Rosemary Clooney on. And if I love Rosemary Clooney, it's going to be better than getting a kid from the CW network, you know, mm-hmm. or the Warner Brothers network at the time. Um, so I loved honoring the people that I grew up watching. Rosie, talk to me about Nora Ephron, because she she directed, obviously, Sleepless in Seattle is top five for me, which you were in. Yeah. But my number one greatest all-time favorite movie is You've Got Mail. And I'll never forgive society what they did to Meg Ryan. I mean, that's a tale for another time. But I feel like she was just treated poorly by media. Uh, but... Uh, I, what is Nora like? Like, what, what did you learn from her? What did you take from her? You know, she became a really close friend and she got me my first apartment in New York City with my son. I was moving back to New York and after we did Sleepless and I had a baby and she's like, well, let me get you into the Apthorpe where she lived. And she did. And, you know, when I met her, I was so nervous because I read everything she had ever written and I knew all about her family's history with carousel and her parents wrote the book for that. And, you know, her life growing up in Beverly Hills uh, with all of the celebrities around her and her brilliance, you know, she was a brilliant, brilliant woman and knew everything about style and doctors and restaurants and what to order. And if you had a question, uh, that was the place to go. Nora Ephron. I always think about in her book, she had said, you need to have a round table because for dinner parties, everyone could see everyone. A square table, it's too difficult. And I, that always sticks with me. She knew, you know, you you would, uh, in her movies, there would be the scenes where she would order everything always, or, you know, she would be bossy like that. And she really did. You'd go to a restaurant and she'd say, here's what you should get. And, you know, you would get it because she knew what she was talking about. She was... uh a phenomenal woman, and I miss her greatly. I really do. I, it's a big loss for those of us who were close enough to, to really love her. You know, you've got mail. The script sort of defies odds to me because there are so many moments in there that a, a screenwriting teacher, for instance, would say that doesn't work in a movie because you could very much tell it was Nora saying, this is how I feel about hats or whatever. Uh, but it wor- she made it work so brilliantly, and I just thought she was a genius. genius. Yeah, she really was. And kind. I mean, a lot of people were afraid of her. I never was. I just always kind of clicked with her, you know, and I had such respect and reverence for her work and for who she is and was. And but I do miss her every day. Yeah. Uh, Now and then for my generation was also very important. And there were reports that your character in the original script was supposed to be a lesbian. Yeah. What was that true? Not only was she, that's how I played the whole part. And there was the scene where I say, I love you to Rita when she's pushing the baby out. And they felt that that was confusing that, you know, well, why would a gay person say I love? I'm like, because it's my friend, you know, (laughs) like it was uh, very interesting to sort of see the final cut where they removed a lot of the gay stuff. But that was a long time ago when, you know, gay stuff wasn't really as prominently featured as it is now in our life. And 
to think where my life has gone, you know, or what has happened in the trajectory of gay rights and civil rights for gay people. It's a bit, really a big journey that we've taken as a culture. Right. There's still a ways to go, but boy, we've come a long way. Yeah. Yeah. I hope one day they get to remake now and then or, or do some sort of reboot of it. Because I, I, I think a lot of people of my generation, we read between the lines and we saw Roberta as, as the lesbian she was. Right. Good. I'm glad. That's how I played her. Rosie, talk to me about the L word Generation Q. You're going to be on season two. I know it's kind of secretive. Like, what can you tell me? Well, I I have to tell you that I got a like brochure from the L word of what I can and can't talk about. It was like reading a thesis. You know, (laughs) what I'm allowed to tell you is that I'm Tina's fiance and Bet is not necessarily happy about it. And so Bet and I, you know, we kind of butt heads and um, I'm in love with Tina and that's how the season begins. And that's pretty much all I'm allowed to say. Okay. Okay. <laughs> Rosie, will you be in the League of Their Own reboot? Like, let's say they yes. call you. They oh, you will. <gasps> You're going to be in it? Yes. I'm <gasps> playing uh, a bartender in one of the scenes uh, at the local gay bar. Rosie, that's amazing. Yeah. What was it like? I, being, what, I mean, did you have memories when you go to set like that? Or what is it well, like? We, I didn't shoot it yet. I'm shooting it in the upcoming uh, months. But I had a great experience on League of Their Own. And, you know, um, I love the Broad City women. And, you know, when I was told that she was doing League, she called me up and said, Ro, would you do? I'm like, in a minute. And then she sent me the pilot that she did. And it was just beautiful. Really well done. And, you know, it's funny. During League of Their Own, my character, again, I think was gay. And when she has that speech where she says, I never really felt like a real girl, always felt like a fake girl and not even a girl, you know, but now there's a lot of us and I feel like we're all okay. So I did that on the take that day on the bus and Penny Marshall goes, Rosie, do it again. It's not like a gay thing. I go, it's what? She said, it's not a gay thing. I'm like, Penn, did you read the, the words? The words are totally that she finally feels she fits in amongst this group of tomboys. And there's a little bit of an undertone of, no, it's not gay anything. Don't make it a gay anything. You know, so I played it the way I played it. But again, to me, that was a gay character as well. Any chance of you rebooting the show? I know you did a charity thing on yeah. YouTube, which was wonderful to see you and John McDee together. Yeah, like, it was Can so we get fun. a podcast or like something going? You know, we've been trying to do a podcast for so long. Everyone I know has a podcast. Like my nanny has a podcast, you know, yeah. everybody is doing it, but we can't seem to put it together. I'm not really sure why. I don't think I would do another show now because truthfully, I'm not really well versed in who's who anymore. I really was when I was younger and mattered to me. I knew everyone in People magazine. Now when I'm on a plane and I grab a People magazine, I have no idea. They're announcing the birth of the third child of Camillo Corbillo. I don't have any idea. I saw some woman at the White House with Joe Biden, a young girl. I'm like, what did she do? You know, she's that new singer. Olivia Olivia Rodrigo. Right. And I didn't even know who she was. So I don't think I'm really in a place to be able to you know, do that. It takes like the fact that I was very pop culture interested helped very much because a lot of times I wouldn't even need the research, but um, now I would need so much research and I would need to do so much work just to catch up on who people are. 
did you have a say with uh with uh caroline ray taking over your show and did you watch it at all um i didn't really watch it because when i first left i really needed to just sort of decompress and not really try to figure out how to get my feet back on the ground and um so I didn't really. I mean, I, I said that I thought she would be good and that they should try her. And, you know, I don't know. I think it was hard to take over my place because pe- people felt it was my show and had been designed for me. And then there's someone else in there. But um, I love her. I think she's a great girl. She's very funny. It's a tough thing to do, a talk show like that, especially for so many years, you know. Uh, Rosie, what other dreams do you have? I know I got to wrap this up. What, what, Career-wise, what are you still uh, hoping to accomplish? I want you to direct. I know at one point you had said you you wanted to direct. Can you do that? Yeah, I think I can. And I think, you know, if this series runs, I'm sure that there's opportunity for, you know, the actors to direct an episode or trail the director and find out, you know. Uh, I would love to do that. I've never done that. I also think that, you know, I'm very lucky that as I age, I seem to be getting more roles, you know, and uh, I'm a 59 year old who hasn't had any plastic surgery. And, you know, that goes a long way when someone is looking for reality uh, on a film, which, you know, that's the goal. Right. Mm-hmm. So I'm looking forward to maybe some Colleen Dewhurst, Geraldine Page roles in the future. Oh, I'm looking forward to that, too. You were one of the first people in the U.S. to have J.K. Rowling on your show. What do you yes. make of sort of her statements against the trans community? You know, it's so interesting. I haven't really been following that, what she said, but it seemed so uh, personally, like, is there somebody in her life that this is happening? And she does. I don't know. I I can't imagine what the benefit was for her. It seems like it was a tremendous, tremendous outpouring of people saying, you know, what the fuck, J.K. Rowling's. But I got an advanced copy of the book from England and I read the book and I was like, holy shit. And I remember seeing Steven Spielberg and saying, you got to buy this, Steven, buy it sight unseen. And, um, you know, what an amazing book that was and series of books and and films. And I don't know what she's talking about now with the trans. It's it's so heartbreaking when you follow trans people on TikTok, you get to really see what the experience is of living your life as a trans person. And, you know, I have two close friends whose sons who have two sons, but they were born daughters and they're, you know, doing great and living their lives to the fullest extent. And it works for the people that need it and know they need it. And I have tremendous compassion for transitioning people, people who are, you know, I, I love watching the videos. This is my voice two minutes on T. This is my voice two weeks on T. This is, you know, and I just can't imagine how hard that must be, you know. Right. I mean, I, I was always a tomboy, but I never wanted to be a boy. Right. Like, I, I, I thought boys were icky in a way, you know. They didn't smell good. They had rough skin. They... I, I didn't have any uh, sort of attraction to boys ever, but I never wanted to be one. You know, I think now with all of these trans kids, you know, what happens to the the butches? What happens to all the butch lesbians? Mm. You know, 
what happens to all the highly effeminate men? Do they all switch genders? I don't know. Rosie, I gotta just ask the question I ask all of my guests, their favorite Mariah Carey song. And also, did you know Mariah as a kid? Because there's this one clip of you talking to Mariah, and you say that you saw her at a bus stop. So did you, you knew her? There was a teacher when I was in school who really took uh, care of me and took me into her family. And her name was Pat Maravell. She has since died of cancer. But when her kids were little, who are now grown with their own children, I would take them to the bus stop with Pat sometimes. You know, I was a stand-up comic, so I had my days free. And I would hang out with her and take them to school and pick them up at the bus stop. And there was one beautiful black child or black-ish. She looked Puerto Rican kind of. And she had long, curly hair. And her name was Mariah. And she was the most beautiful kid I had ever seen. And I would talk to her at the bus stop all the time. And and I would sing the song, they call the wind Mariah to her when I would see her. So when she got old, when she got famous and she was talking about her life in that town, I was like, oh my God, this is Bayview Road. That is the same girl. So when she came on my show, I said, did you live on Bayview Road? She was like, what? I said, you know that bus stop down by the beach? I used to see you. She's like, you were that girl who used to sing this. Yes, I am. So it was a weird, weird coincidence that we happened to be in the same place at the same time when we were, you know, I was a teen and she was a young kid. Wow. Do you have a favorite song of hers? I like that butterfly. I, I like I like Mariah Carey. I think she's been through a very tough life and uh, she's taking care of herself. And she came out and told everyone about her bipolar, I think it is. And, you know, and that's a brave thing. That's scary to some people. It's scary to some people to hear, you know, some, you tell somebody who have major depressive disorder and anxiety, it doesn't quite hit them as much as bipolar does, you know? Yeah. She's my, she's my number one diva. You know, she's my, yes. my everything. And Rosie, this meant the world to me and I'll never be able to properly express just you taking this time, uh, what it meant and means for me. There's a thing that happens when you realize a dream that it's like, I don't even know that I could put this into words. I'm not even making sense, but this is a dream. Well, thank realized. you so much, honey. And I appreciate all the love. I feel it. And thank you so much. I love you so much. And I can't wait for everyone to check out the L word generation Q season two. Rosie, we're all going to be watching. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, honey. Bye Ro. Bye. I called you Ro. I shouldn't have called you Ro. That's I'm okay. Sorry. <laughs> Ro's good. Ro's good. Okay, Rosie. Thank you. Okay, bye. love decorating the house and getting furniture, but sometimes it could be overwhelming to design a space. And so luckily, I'm here to tell you about a company called Cozy. Now, Cozy is fantastic, a North American company that thoughtfully designs furniture made for modern living. Now, Cozy strives to provide the best furniture shopping experience with elegant, super high quality products, plus fast delivery and easy assembly, which is really important to me because I do not like putting together furniture. So the easier, the better for me. Now, Cozy offers a beautiful, customizable sofas and sectionals that are made to adapt in time. This means customers can add seats to the sofas over time. Maybe if you're extending your family, you might want more space on the couch. Cozy also offers a great range of coffee tables, washable rugs, wall shelving, credenzas, TV stands, and accessories so much. It's thoughtfully designed furniture made 
for modern living. There's an outdoor sofa and tables collection that is fantastic. It's called the Mistral. So you can choose the perfect sofa configuration for your outdoor setup. Uh, Cozy also opened its first retail space on Queen Street in Toronto to push the experience to the next level and allow customers to engage physically with the products. So transform your living space today with Cozy. Visit Cozy.com, spelled C-O-Z-E-Y, to start customizing your furniture today. Again, that's Cozy, C-O-Z-E-Y.com. Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win, and support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. Invesco QQQ is proud to sponsor this episode and even prouder to provide access to innovation for the last 25 years. Basketball has had innovations over the years, too. We're seeing the game played in new ways every day. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. I hope you all enjoyed this episode as much as I did. It was so hard to narrow it down. I had so many questions that I didn't even get to by the end of the interview, but I feel like I really got a lot of meat. You know, I really got to some questions that I feel like she hasn't answered in other interviews before and talk about uh, things like Penny Marshall and Nora Ephron and so many different things that I've wanted to talk to her about forever. So I want to thank ACAST for all episodes of Everything Iconic. You can go to acast.com slash Everything Iconic. Be sure to subscribe. Uh, find me on social media at Danny Pellegrino. I love you all. We'll be back next week with recaps of The Real Housewives. Uh, stay safe. Sending all my love your way.